Hey guys, guess who? Spoiler alert, it's me, Mike Rowe, with another episode of The Way I Heard It, specifically episode number 362. This one is called Don't Forget the Footnotes with our new and good friend, Doug Brunt. Chuck, do I sound as bad outside of my head as I do inside of my head? I can only imagine how it sounds inside your head, but outside your head, I can hear a little congestion, but it's not terribly bad. I'm not one to make excuses, friends, but I will right now. <laughs> I'm filled with a, a weird mix of Dayquil, some lingering Nyquil, some Afrin, which is extraordinary, and mm. uh, some Noble Tennessee whiskey, <laughs> which is... I'm not advising any of this. I'm just saying that a lot of pharmacology had to come together to uh, keep this cold at bay for uh, an hour or so, as I had the conversation you're about to hear. Already, Chuck, it's slipping into oblivion as the drugs wear off. Was it a good conversation? It sure seemed like it when it was happening. I thought it was a great conversation. I knew it was going to be. The book that this guy has written is just stellar. Just a really, really good read. It's a mystery. It's a history. It's a history book that's got mystery to it. And I was shocked by the ending. So Yeah, it's terrific. It's called The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. Fairly mysterious. He's terribly German. <laughs> He's very German. And uh, Doug Brunt is a, just a great writer. This is his third or fourth book. If you haven't picked up the other ones, you should give them all a deep dive. Yes, Chuck is telling me it's the fourth. Well, yes. I mean, you're holding up four fingers, so I assume that's what you mean. It is his fourth book. It's good. I got it. I gave my copy to my dad right away because I knew he was going to like it. But you will learn in this book, among other things, that... Very, very few human beings have ever walked the planet who had a bigger impact on the environment mm. and the species than this guy, Rudolf Diesel, who most people, they not only don't know he exists, they think of him with a small d, thanks to all of the signs at all of the filling stations. But the odyssey with which the uh, diesel engine was created is extraordinary. And the mystery that surrounded mm. this man's sudden disappearance was headline news and would have been for months and months, but for the fact that the First World War broke out and everybody stopped paying attention. And so what you really have here is a question along the lines of, what do you think would happen tomorrow if Elon Musk went missing disappeared. today? Just disappeared yeah. off the face yep. of the earth. No yeah. ransom note, no body, nothing. Mm. So... You've got one of the most important inventors in the history of inventors here today and gone tomorrow, and nobody has ever figured out what happened to him, but Douglas Brunt has, and he's written this story that plays as a terrific whodunit as well as a history book for people who don't read history books. There is everything to love about this book, including the fact that what fun to talk to this guy. I love it when authors, you know, show up without a giant stick up their butts and are willing to have a few laughs and share a cocktail. Now, I was just going to say, not only was he willing to share a few laughs, he, he went with your encouragement. He ran off and got a little hooch to come back and uh, and imbibe with us. That was great. We didn't make a big deal about the fact that he's married to Megan Kelly, but he is, and I always that? point that out. Megan Kelly, Chuck, you may have Megan seen her. Megan Kelly, Kelly right. Wasn't, she didn't it. she do an episode on this podcast? She did. She okay. did. And I've done one or two on hers. 
and uh, she's had a pretty great career, too. These two together, what a terrific couple. She had a big part in the book turning out the way it did. We'll get to all that in the chat you're about to hear. I love the fact that Doug cares deeply about footnotes. I do, too. And the footnotes in this book are better than many books. They're terrific. You're going to love it. The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel with Douglas Brunt, right after this. Here's a question I bet I know the answer to. Chuck, do you like apple pie? Of course. Love it. Well, I've got great news for you. Uh, We will have apple pie up here over the holidays. You're welcome to come by any time and eat as much as you like. Uh, I also have some bad news. Oh, what's that? Yeah, the apples in the pie, they don't count for the recommended five servings of fruit and vegetables. The Mayo Clinic says you're supposed to have to prevent heart disease, lower your blood pressure, and your cholesterol. What Mm. you want to do is eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every single day, but that's nearly impossible, which is why you need, tell them what you need, Chuck. You need Field of Greens, of course. Correct. Because every fruit and every vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs. And when I say vital organs, I refer to the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, your immune system, all the vital stuff. The holidays are here. You need to stay healthy. Plus, you'll notice your skin, your hair, your nails will look healthier, too. How are your Uh fingernails doing, Chuck? They've been growing like weeds, haven't they? Are you kidding me? I could climb a building on the outside with these things. Don't climb a building, folks. After you take Field of Greens, we can't recommend that, but I can tell you this. It is the simplest way to get those daily fruits and vegetables. It tastes amazing. We can get you started with 15% off your first order, a 15% discount at fieldofgreens.com when you use promo code Mike. That's promo code Mike at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. A one, two, three. Nutrition like you never seen when you swallow greens. This statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And it won't help you sing. My granddad's whiskey is down here in my office in case of emergencies. So I may actually pour myself a snort. If you want to get something, by all means, feel free. Unfortunately, that might take me to, I'm over in this, like our guest studio. So it'd probably take me a good few minutes, like leave this thing and then go over there and then come back. Well, you know what? The name of your podcast is dedicated. I mean, it would show a certain <laughs> dedication, but would no, you don't like, do I can that. do it. No, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, really it's, <laughs> uh, although what is it? 530 over there, right? Where are you? New York? Yeah. 530. Yeah. We're in Connecticut. I mean, it's late enough. You know what? Yeah. Go get something. All right. right. Dealer's choice. I'll see you you in a minute. Fantastic. What could possibly go wrong? Okay. Nothing, man. Are you kidding? (laughs) We'll play some elevator music and wait for Doug Brunt to come back with his choice of... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I really am, dude. I am hopped up. I just took... I took three Dayquils... And two shots of Afrin. Oh, the Afrin, man. That's the stuff. Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I haven't had it in years. I haven't had it since I got my nose fixed. I haven't needed it, but I just wanted to try and open it up a little bit more. And it is just... Are you going to have a snort of whiskey? Do you have a glass? Because I I think you're going to have to... Do I have a glass? Yeah. I'm going to go get some, man. Yeah, you might as well. If all the cool kids are doing it. Yeah, they are. (laughs) 
Well, this is a first on the way I heard it. If you're still listening to this, uh, I'm looking at my monitor and, and I'm alone. My guest, Doug Brunt, has gone off to get something to drink and my producer, Chuck Klausmeyer, has done the same. I'm sitting here under the influence of any number of medications and I have a bottle of Noble nearby. So, yeah, it just seems like the right thing to do on a, uh, what is today? God, it's a Monday. Well, that tells you all you need to know, really. A Monday. You think I'm going to leave any of this in? (laughs) (laughs) I think you will. I think you're going to put some elevator music under it. Of course. Okay, I'm back. Yes, you are. Well done. What'd you bring? This is a gift from Jack Carr. Do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. He's been on the podcast. I love Jack Carr. He's been on this podcast. Yeah, Terminalist. So he, uh, he sent me a bottle of Jack Carr Warrior Proof whiskey. <laughs> wow. So uh, he came on my show as well a little while ago. That's not intimidating at all. You got to be tough to get this stuff down. <laughs> Warrior Proof. I guess that's clever. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> He's got all kinds of stuff. He's got hats and T-shirts like, and stuff. Yeah. Those Navy SEALs, man, they know what they're doing. They've got, like Jocko. He's got his protein powder. These guys oh, are yeah. thriving out there. Yeah, they are. Well, you know, Plymouth Gin had the uh, Navy proof, wasn't it? Oh, I love Plymouth Gin. That's good stuff, too. So let's start there, then. Why do you love Plymouth Gin? Of all the gins to choose, I can tell you why I love it. You know, I'm not that picky. I don't mean to say, like, it's Plymouth or go home, but, you know, Hendrix, they're all pretty good. But uh, someone recommended it once, and I just had it in a martini, like a very dry martini with a twist. So you're really just drinking mostly the gin. And it was great. Yeah. Well, I started drinking it probably... 20 years ago, maybe 25, when I stumbled across my favorite fictitious character of all time. Regular listeners will be bored of the story, but as a writer, I'm sure you've stumbled across John D. McDonald in your travels. I have not read him, but I know. Well, his big novel, I think he wrote something called Condominium back in the 70s. He wrote Cape Fear. He was real big on the pulps, you know, but the his claim to fame is the Travis McGee mysteries. And Travis McGee is this boat bum, you know, who basically solves crimes and lives off of the grid and among many other things. He lives on a boat called the Busted Flush, which he won in a poker game thanks to that very hand. And he drinks Plymouth gin. (laughs) And the way he describes it, Doug, I mean, this is in the style of Elmore Leonard and, you know, the great pulp writers. And he's just always, usually after getting the crap knocked out of him, he draws a hot bath and he slides into it and he, he puts a little sherry over the ice in a Tom Collins glass and then he flicks it out and then he pours in the freezing cold Plymouth gin and the ice cracks and he sits back and he sips on it and ye shall be restored. Oh, that sounds good. It sounds like you just put me in the mood to go read a good novel like that. Well, you did the same for me not long ago. Thanks to this thing, you were talking to one of my favorite authors, and yeah. you mentioned the Gold Coast, and I just grabbed it off the shelf because you said it was the novel that made you want it to start writing, and that is so funny to me because, for me, it was the novel that made me realize I was never going to be Nelson DeMille. <laughs> I should probably stay in my lane. Why did that thing resonate with you so much? I think the way I put it in the episode you're describing there is, I want to make people feel the way that novel made me feel. And it just transported me to these characters. It's a little bit different from his other work. And there, I, you know, we all aspire to do what Nelson did there. And the way he created those characters and the scene, it just was transporting. Every time you picked up that book, it brought you into that world, made you feel something. I'd be 
seeing people later telling about scenes from the book or funny witticisms in it and observations yeah. of human life. Like you really were getting it on so many levels because he has very astute observations of human nature in the book as yeah. well. So obviously the great ones can do this in their sleep, but it's so hard to do to really make you like a protagonist and to make you mm -hmm. to miss her or him to pick up a book not to see what's going to happen next necessarily, but to see how your friend is doing. That's, mm -hmm. that's what McDonald did for me with Travis McGee. That's what DeMille did with John Corey in particular. But this wasn't a John Corey novel, Chuck. You should read this. It's called The Gold Coast. I mean, for me, Doug, it was like a modern-day Great Gatsby, and in some ways, even better. I do hear it compared to that as well, and bigger too. I mean, you're spending even more time with that character. And from the writer's perspective, it's really the same thing. When you choose a topic for a novel, it's like, this is who I'm going to be hanging around with for the next couple of years, you know, these characters and this story. And so I think authors, even more so than readers in some way, need to be pretty selective with what they take on. Because you're going to be hunkered down. I don't have a list of questions, but if I did, the first official one would probably be... Are you sick of Diesel yet? Because you've been living with him for a long time. And, you know, I wrote a book once. My mom's written a bunch. And I always laugh with authors who usually, you know, away from a microphone will confess that, yeah, you know, you dig in, you live with him, you write it, then you rewrite it, then you rewrite it again because writing's rewriting. Mm -hmm. And then when you finally get it where you want, you're done. And except you're not. <laughs> it's just promoted starting. yeah so <laughs> then you hop into the next phase yeah oh, God. you know i admire the man so much that i'm not sick of him but there were phases i was I, you know the copy edit phase when you're just going through you know the minutiae and you've got to get every date right and everything you know it's just unbelievable these copy editors who do this work are superhuman i don't know how they do it but there are phases that i was certainly ready to move on from there were moments when I was working on that book where, without a doubt, I am the person alive on this planet who knows the most about Rudolf Diesel at this point. I mean, I was in archives and reading everything for years and years. But there were moments when I could make a connection based on some little thing in an archive, something Churchill said or did that was, you know, within a week of something Diesel did. And it meant to me, it drew a connection in my story that Almost no one, someone else would pass that piece of information and it would be interesting, but not a big deal. For me, it was a huge deal. And in those moments, those were the real joys of working on the book. I've joked, it's like, it's like the nerdy side of Indiana Jones, you know, when you discover like a piece of treasure like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but it's also a new fact or a new, maybe not a fact, but, you know, if you just immerse yourself in the biography of a person right? That's fine. And lots of great writers have done that. But when you start to lay them atop one another, like Venn diagrams, and find mm -hmm. connections that nobody had seen before, that's mm -hmm. new. I mean, that's my favorite part of this book. And I, I don't know what you know about my misspent career writing, but I, in the style of Paul Harvey, have always been fascinated by these, you know, learning something you didn't know about someone you do. I've tried for years to write in that style. That's how this podcast started. And your mm -hmm. book is like the granddaddy of that because, yeah. I mean, it's a novel. It's a history book for people who don't read history books in sheep's clothing, really. It's a whodunit when it comes down yeah. to it. So 
as a guy who's probably sick to death of talking about your own book, why don't you just make us give a damn about Rudolph for starters, and then just kind of walk me through how it turned in to the obsession it clearly became. I stumbled on it. Like many of your listeners, seven years ago, I always thought diesel was a fuel option at the fueling station. You know, I, I didn't think it was this other engine. I bought this boat around that time, and it was an older, bigger boat. It needed to be fixed up. And I was talking to the guy about what I should do with the boat. And he said, well, the first thing you should do with a boat like this is get rid of these gasoline engines and replace them with diesels. I didn't know why. I just thought one engine was like any other. And he said, well, 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, zero from diesel. You can take a lit match and drop it into a barrel of diesel fuel. Nothing will happen. It's not flammable. It has no fumes. And you'll get about three or four times the fuel efficiency. So in your tank of 200 gallons of fuel, you'll go three or four times as far. So I switched to diesels. And then I came across this like a year later. Because as you know, I'd previously written fiction. This is my first nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. I was just Googling around looking for anything that might be interesting. And maybe David Graham was doing the same thing with a wager. You know, he came across this crazy shipwreck. It's, you know. And on this list, though, was Rudolph Diesel. And I thought, well, maybe this is connected to my diesel engines that I just got. So I clicked on this link to learn about diesel's disappearance at sea in 1913, just before World War I. And it was a crazy story. And on the face of it made no sense. You know, so as you were saying, the book is kind of a, it's a biography, but it's also a primer on turn of the century European diplomacy. It's a little bit of like an engines for dummies. And then it turns into, in the end, like this Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes kind of whodunit mystery. So to set up the mystery, in 1913, Rudolf Diesel is traveling across the North Sea on an overnight passenger ferry from Belgium to Great Britain. And in the night, he disappears. And in the morning, he's supposed to meet his friends for breakfast at 6 a.m. He doesn't show. They hold the ship at sea and they search for Diesel and they can't find him anywhere. All they find is his hat and his coat neatly folded at the stern of the ship by the rail. Mm-hmm. So they put into sea and all the newspapers around the world, from New York to London to Western Europe to Russia, explode with this crazy disappearance because while we've kind of forgotten the man today, at that time, he was a huge celebrity. It would be like an Elon Musk type disappearing. So it was the headline of all the newspapers of what had happened. The prevailing theory was suicide, that he had jumped overboard. But there were also two theories of murder, that he might have been murdered either by Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany, or John Rockefeller, the the richest man in the world, founder of Standard Oil. And they each had their own reason for doing it because the diesel engine presented this kind of revolutionary opportunity in business and in warfare. And uh, you know this stuff. I'll, I'll just Maybe I'll just finish off this uh, bit to set up the mystery. But the reason people pointed to Kaiser Wilhelm as maybe wanting to have committed this murder was that by 1913, the diesel engine had emerged as the only engine that could service a U-boat or a submarine. Kerosene and gasoline engines just wouldn't work. It didn't have the range. There were fires or explosions. It, but with a diesel engine the submarine suddenly became this terrible offensive weapon. It could travel far out into sea lanes, control shipping and military transports. And so every Navy of the major powers was scrambling for diesel power. But Rudolf Diesel was still the main expert. And you really needed him to sort of get across the exacting requirements of undersea travel. And the reason he was crossing the North Sea on that day in 1913 was to attend the groundbreaking ceremony. He was a founder and board director of a new diesel engine manufacturing company in Great Britain, whose mandate it was to supply diesel engines for the Royal Navy's submarine program. So of course, Kaiser Wilhelm would be like, hell no, that's not happening. Right. 
Rockefeller had a very different reason for viewing diesel as a threat, which was that diesel had been advocating that his engine could run on things other than petroleum-based fuels. He was promoting in America in 1912 that, you know, you have farmers here, you can grow your own fuel. His engine, he'd won the 1900 Paris World's Fair on a diesel engine running peanut oil. He could run it on vegetable oil. He could run it on coal tar. He didn't need petroleum. And he was saying, I can break the American fuel monopoly and I don't need a law to do it. I can do it with the power of my technology. And, you know, this was a very vulnerable time for Rockefeller in 1913 because he had made all his money from the founding of Standard Oil in 1870 through to the end of the century in 1900. He made all his money on kerosene. He was really in the illumination business. Gasoline was actually a waste product that they would throw away. And by the turn of the century, though, Edison and others were developing better and better electric light bulbs. So the kerosene market was completely going away. The gasoline market had not yet started and really was not a sure thing that it even would. Good news for the whales, as I recall. Exactly. Kerosene, the electric light bulb was going to do to kerosene what kerosene had done to the whales, uh, the whaling industry. Right. So, you know, Rockefeller was desperate. He needed engines to be burning gasoline. This book, as you know, is, in my mind, fascinating little footnotes. Each is like a little treasure of an information. But in one of those, in 1905, New York City had a fleet of taxi cabs, and they were all electric. There was a charging station on Broadway in Times Square... And so anyway, it it wasn't a given that we were going to be burning gasoline all this time, but Rockefeller found ways to ensure that we did, and and diesel was a real threat to him at that time. In so many ways, the book just rhymes and hums with the headlines of today. I mean, you mentioned Musk, Mm. and like if you think about the obvious corollary would be the threat of, say, wind or solar or alternative energies on fossil fuels, right? And people will, Mm. and have always talked about that and will continue to, obviously, for decades. But I think of, like, the legacy media, and I think of the threat of social media and the impact of Twitter vis-a-vis Musk and just this, like, there's always an individual or two, if you go through history, who has his or her fingers around or on the pulse of something, something momentous. That's where the history comes alive. It should be noted, too, that he wasn't just discovered missing. You can't discover somebody missing. You can discover his clothes neatly folded on the stern, his hat Mm -hmm. set on top of it, like a man who undressed before throwing himself off the back. It wasn't crazy to think that he killed himself, and yet it made no sense because there was no indication that he was inclined to do such a thing. And then right in the midst of all of this confusion, as quickly as he's in the headlines, he's knocked off the front pages because of that pesky war to end all wars. And so begins the journey of his weird anonymity. Right. By the way, speaking of fuels, I just had a sip of this Jack Carr whiskey, which could definitely power something. My gosh, it's uh, it's delicious. I tend to do this with an ice cube, which I I didn't do this time. I normally do it as well. This is the barrel strength version of Noble, and it's got a wang to it as well, 121 proof. So it's just a thing for Afrin and Dayquil combined. I'll let you know how things go. That is going to knock your cold right out. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to knock something out. Along with my soul. Hey, can I ask a question here about the, I know the sort of the battle for fuel 
But why is it that uh, we didn't go to diesel? Diesel engines uh, will mm-hmm. run longer. You know, it takes less fuel to go a greater distance. How did we wind up with gasoline over diesel? Hey, you want to hear how I'm doing on prizepicks.com slash Mike, the largest independently owned daily fantasy sports platform in North America? That's a rhetorical question. I'm going to tell you. But first, just let me tell you how it works. I select two or more players, pick more than or less than their projected player stats, and place my entry. That's it. Takes less than a minute. If I pick two players and get both right, I win three times my entry. If I choose six players and get all six right, I can win up to 25 times my entry. Now, they also offer weekly promotions like Taco Tuesday, where select projections are discounted up to 25%, so you get better value on your entries. Or my favorite, Flex Friday, where your entry is protected up to 15 bucks. Seriously, you can miss your projections and still get your entry back. Now, ready to hear how I'm doing? I've been playing prize picks for three months, and I'm still having fun, and I'm up 82%. That's right. I deposited 100 bucks. I now have $182. That's a fact. Now, if you want to test your skills like me, keep your eye on the prize by going to prizepicks.com slash Mike and use code Mike for a first deposit match up to 100 bucks. That's prizepicks.com slash Mike, code Mike, for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Keep your eyes on the prize at pricepicks.com slash Mike. Well, diesel still is the dominant power source. We use diesel for most things. 100% of cargo ships are diesel. Trains throughout the 20th century were diesel. Anything larger than a passenger car, diesel. Every truck, every piece of heavy equipment, farm machinery, all that stuff is diesel. It does run in a form of petrol diesel. I mean, it, it is a derivative of crude oil in that sense. And so Rockefeller kind of mm-hmm. won in that way, and I can explain how that happened too. But on, on the engine front, passenger cars, the difference between a diesel engine and a gasoline engine is it's much heavier, first of all. And the metal casting is a little bit more sophisticated and expensive to do, and the materials are a bit more expensive. It's a high-pressure engine, and so the development of it is a little bit more. And because it's heavier, it works better on, in environments that can support the weight, like a ship or a train you know, light, those early cars, like the Benz right. cars, you know, those look like big tricycles or so, and they had a half horsepower engine and things like that. You couldn't mount a big diesel on those things and have it really work. So smaller passenger cars, particularly in those early days, were gas engines. Diesel, obviously, the technology's gotten better and better and better over the years, so you have more compact, smaller engines. But it is, to this day, a heavier engine. And in fact, just a couple years ago, two, three years ago, they were developing an outboard marine engine of diesel. And that was going to be a big thing because the efficiency would be great. And a lot of people like the the user friendliness of outboard motors as opposed to inboards. But in the end, it was still was too heavy. It didn't go anywhere because it was heavier than the, than the gas outboards. So it's just big hunk so, of weight on the back of your boat. But isn't it weird, though? I mean, over the last hundred years or so with all of the advancements and metallurgy and so forth, why hasn't the weight of the engine come down? And if it did, to Chuck's point, what would that mean, practically speaking, for, for the automotive industry? It has come down, but I think the gasoline engines have come down in a commensurate way. So they're, they remain lighter. The performance of what a diesel needs to do, that high pressure to explode the fuel in the cylinder, just requires more than gasoline does. So as it comes down, the gasoline engines have come down even more. They are still lighter. Okay. So diesel goes off the back of the boat presumably. He's in the headlines. 
the world is perched on war, war breaks out. And so practically speaking, in terms of the narrative, and don't give anything away for God's sakes, but what happens next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the war where Diesel, he had primarily been working since 1897 in Germany, and a number of companies were working very closely with him. So he had trained a number of engineers and Germany really was in the lead in diesel manufacturing. Russia, ironically, was number two, uh, the Nobel family in Russia, which is another amazing, fun side story to the book. Um, The Swedes who emigrated to Russia, to St. Petersburg, they basically discovered the Russian oil business and they also were the leading engine manufacturer in all of Russia and build all the engines for the Tsar's Navy. A number of people were already pretty well ahead in diesel expertise, but Great Britain, who had been trailing terribly in diesel expertise and a submarine program, did through the war achieve some remarkable uh, strides with their submarine fleet. They didn't quite rival the Germans, but they did put some pretty good submarines out into the war effort. And yeah, you know, the diesel engine, it's a mystery. And and again, I don't want to, as you said, I don't want to give away too much of what became of things after 1913. But throughout the century, the diesel engine has dominated. In World War II, uh, this is another note in the book, on D-Day, our landing on D-Day, 100% of the marine craft were running diesels at that time. And in terms of industry through the century, there's a little bit I can do. I mean, at this point, as you know, on book tour, you can sort of pull the string on your back and you do your thing. (laughs) (laughs) But imagine a piece of fruit grown in a tropical region. 100% of the machinery, the farm equipment used to grow that fruit is powered by diesel. It gets loaded onto a truck. All trucks, 100% are diesel. It gets driven down to a port where a crane, diesel powered, loads it onto a cargo ship. 100% of cargo ships around the world are diesel. It goes across the oceans to another port, onto a truck, to a train. Through the 20th century, all trains, diesel. Goes to an inland refrigerated warehouse where the power is likely from a plant operating diesel. In fact, these charging stations for the electric cars are generally right behind them. There's a diesel power plant powering the batteries to power the cars. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but diesel has completely powered our global economy throughout the 20th century and really through to the present day. It's been our dominant power source. And yet, put 100 people in a room, or 1,000, and show of hands, right? First of all, how many people know the guy was even a guy who walked the earth? How many gas stations to this day still sell diesel with a small d as opposed to a a Chevrolet or or a Ford? We know. But a couple years ago, I came really close to selling a show called Fooked. It stood for people in history unappreciated in current times. And it was Mm. just going to be a look at men and women who did great things, important things, Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, just got pushed to the side, Diesel would have to be near the top of the list. I can't think of anyone else who comes close. The fact that he's completely scrubbed from history, I, yeah, the deficit of appreciation, massive. He did a ton, and he's unknown, basically. I do love the description of your show. I mean, Diesel is such a perfect example of it. I've been referring to it, because you and I are very aligned on this, thinking of what's fascinating to us. And I've been describing it to my editor as the iceberg theory of history. 
Hmm. You know just enough. Like you recognize the names and the settings and the places and some of the things that happen. Like you've got a real strong toehold, sometimes even more. Like you might consider yourself a bit of an expert on pieces of it. But then you're only looking at, you know, as Hemingway says, it's the 10% and then the iceberg below the surface, like all this other stuff. And it's, in that sense, it's even more mind-blowing because you thought you knew it and you thought you had a pretty good grasp of it. But then the 90% below the surface, you're just like, holy crap, I did not know these connections were there. I did not know this side of Winston Churchill or whatever it is. And in the case of Diesel, you know, you didn't even know it was a guy, you know, in that case, you know, your toehold is really on other things. Like you kind of knew the diesel engine, you passed the word diesel all the time, but you didn't know any of this other stuff. But even the diesel engine, you kind of think it's just a, an engine that burns a different kind of fuel, but that's not the case at all. It's compression, which mm -hmm. blew my mind, you know? I mean, you're right, this book, there's a part of this book that really is engines for dummies. And I'm the dummy who read it and went, wow, I had no idea that that's how it works. Before I dove in, I was the dummy too. I didn't even know it was really, I thought it was a different fuel. I didn't even know it was really a different engine. Right. You know? It's yeah. like the biography yeah, channel collided with the producers of how it's made and then was handed to Agatha Christie's old editor. And, and, and really, it's hard, Doug, to just like put your book in a pre-existing category, which is why I like it so much. But man, what a pain in the ass it is to promote it without screwing up the reveal. I gave it to my dad three weeks ago. I went back mm -hmm. to see him last week. First thing he does is screw up the ending for me because I hadn't finished it yet. Um, <laughs> like, how do you promote a book? I guess we're doing it right now. But the best thing I can say to people is, look... I totally understand the bigger riddle here, which is how can you make history palpable in 2024? And not to people who are genuinely curious about history. We don't count. How can you do it for this generation? How can you do it for people yeah. who would otherwise be watching the cooking channel? And yeah. I think you've done it, man. And I think part of it is that you were genuinely curious about all of it. And that's really what I want to hear from you about is the research process. Like, yeah. what would it have been like to write a book like this 40 years ago or 30 years ago before the internet? Much harder. Yeah, much harder. <laughs> One quick thing. There's a line by Rudyard Kipling, which you may already know, which is, and I'm pretty close on this, if history were told in the form of stories, we would never forget. It's that great mm. narrative nonfiction stuff. Eric Larson's terrific at it. David yes. Grant, terrific. They're sort of the category kings. Barbara Tuckman, going back to the 50s, she really pioneered so much of modern narrative nonfiction, telling it in a novelistic way. But it's nonfiction. I mean, you're getting history, but you're just enraptured by it because you're really reading a great story. And in that sense, you do never forget it. It's such a neat trick. There's another author who I love, called George MacDonald Frazier, who wrote The Flashman Chronicles, which is the best historical fiction I've read. And it's just that delightful mix of political incorrectness with a historian's discerning eye to really tell the truth of a thing, but through the eyes of an unreliable narrator. Have you read any of his stuff, The Flashman Chronicles? I haven't. I'm going to have oh, to get these recommendations from you. Well, for what it's worth... It's a little Forrest Gumpy, isn't it? You know, he's kind of like Forrest Gump. Flashman the is the classic unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. First of all, he doesn't exist. He is a complete fiction of Frazier's mind. 
but he exists in the center of every Victorian conflict through the age of the queen, like from 1845 through Conpow and Lucknow, all the Indian things. He's with Custer at the last stand. He's Zelig. He's everywhere. And he reports on all that he knows uh, because the construct of the novels is he's been promoted inexplicably through the ranks. He's ultimately a general who dies in his 90s and his, his diaries are found by an editor who brings them to life and starts writing these accounts. And you reminded me earlier when you talked about how to use a footnote right, how to really get an endnote right. The end of each of these books is 30 or 40 pages of footnotes. And they were so convincing, Doug, when they came out in the early 70s. They were so convincing that they were reviewed as historical works. They're actually works of fiction written by a historian. But my God, they pull you in to a character mm -hmm. who you miss when you're not around. You know, it's funny, my editor and I have joked, this is not a saying of either of ours, I think it's largely out there, but one writer's footnote can be another writer's whole book. <laughs> I think in this case, one of my own footnotes might be my own next book. There are, there are a couple things I'm kicking around, but I, I love this period of time, this quarter century leading up to World War I. It's really underexplored, underwritten, because just as we were beginning to digest what the hell happened with that war to end all wars, as you called it, Another one happened. And so we never kind of got our chance to figure it all out and hash it all out. And so history's kind of neglected that period of time. And I jokingly refer to it with my wife as Downton Abbey, the early seasons, <laughs> that hinge point, because World War I really was such a hinge point. Like we lit, think about all the empires that collapsed, the Ottoman, the Russian, the German, the Austrian, all these empires went away. Urbanization was already happening, but certainly it got accelerated by World War I, that sort of feudal... Downton Abbey living went away. Uh, the world just changed a lot, right, in that hinge in history of World War I, and it's a fantastic period to explore. Our friend uh, Dan Carlin talks a lot about this, and, I mean, I think it's stunning, Doug, the confusion today about what Europe was in that period, that alliance of empires, and that weird combination, again, of biography and humanity with, with place. The mm -hmm. fact that Bismarck and the Queen are related in some way, right? I mean, all of these alliances, people, I think we'd be better and smarter today as a bipedal species if we understood in relatively recent memory just how intensely convoluted Diesel's world was. Yeah. It's a crazy time. The shuffling of alliances throughout Europe. I mean, it was almost like a game of musical chairs. And then it's just like when that shot went off in Sarajevo, it's like, okay, well, this is how we lined up. So we'll fight this way, I guess. But five or 10 years before or after, it might've been a very different looking thing. You know, the British were never that fond of the Russians, but they, you know, fought. And in, in fact, in the Crimean War had fought against each other, you know, not long before. And so it's just weird how it all lined up that way. One of the other things, you know, getting aside setting aside the political stuff, the science and the arts and the humanities developed so rapidly. The advent of the World's Fair seemed to mark this crazy acceleration in our ability to, you know, with science and, and other things. And so the cast of characters around it, you know, Diesel's contemporaries were Marconi, 
Ford, Edison, the Wright brothers, Bell, Adolphus Bush, who actually plays a major role in this book, the founder of Anheuser-Busch, and he had taken the, the exclusive diesel license for North America and right. um, built submarine diesels for the U.S. Navy. Chester Nimitz is, is a big diesel guy. It's just an amazing cast of characters. Lost a finger. Yeah. <laughs> Lost his ring finger in a diesel engine. That's right. Nimitz. Yes, that's right. It's a great story. So Chester Nimitz was sent to Germany in 1912, uh, 13, to study diesel technology because he was going to come back and refit a bunch of U.S. Navy ships to diesel. And he was in Augsburg in Germany, and he got his finger caught in an engine. And the only thing that saved it was his class ring. But if you look at pictures of Chester Nimitz later in life or that wax mannequin of him in the Victory in the Pacific exhibit, you see that he's missing the ring finger of his left hand. And that was due to his trip to Germany in 1913. Crazy. He almost died right out here on San Francisco Bay years ago. He landed in a, an amphibious plane and they hit debris and flipped him over. The pilot drowned. Whoa. And he very nearly died too. I only know that because on Dirty Jobs, I found one of the boats that is still used here in the bay to pick up debris. There's a whole category of Dirty Jobs dedicated to keeping the San Francisco Bay clean. You know, after a tidal surge, whatever, docks break off mm -hmm. and these big chunks of stuff float out there. Boat yeah. was called the Raccoon, and they told me that story. And there you go. Another weird little thing you stumble across, and suddenly you're making a TV show about a trash boat because a guy with nine <laughs> fingers had a bad landing. We need some of that over here. That new boat I mentioned at the top of the show, we were going to the U.S. Open from Connecticut down the, you know, you head down the Long Island Sound toward the East River toward the U.S. Open Center. And um, we passed like a telephone-sized pole in there. I mean, it was a total day-ender if we had hit that. Oh, yeah. But there's tons yeah. of that stuff floating around here. I'm glad there's someone out there wow. getting that stuff out of the water because it's really brutal. It's landmines. It's the iceberg you just described. You saw 10% mm. of whatever that thing was, you know? <laughs> right. So you actually bought a boat, Doug? You didn't go with the old, I'm just going to find some friends with boats? No, and, we, and we are boat you owners. Did it. <laughs> oh, my God. For better or worse, we've had it for about seven years. We did, in fact, repower to diesel. So if you go to my website, there's pictures of the boat and the diesel engine. And I'm legit. I own diesel. You know, I'm backing well, this up. Dude, you'd better. <laughs> you'd better. What's the name of your boat? Triumvirate, which uh, is really named that. We have three kids. Three kids, so it's sort of well, a reference well. to the power of our three kids. I guess it's better than uh, Medusa. <laughs> <laughs> Way better. Yeah. Hey, Way better. you mentioned Churchill, and I wonder, I guess maybe I'm curious about the things you didn't think you were going to learn as you dove mm -hmm. into this. And if you could talk more about the way, like, did you learn something about Churchill that you didn't know, or Edison, or the Wright brothers, or any of those other things that wound up propping the whole story up? <laughs> Studies show that this time of year, if you hear someone tell you that they have the perfect gift for the holidays, then they're probably reading a script. Because everybody with something to sell right now seems to be trying to drive the point home that it's the perfect gift for the holidays. And of course, statistically speaking, that simply can't be true. Well, really, I mean, statistically speaking, only one can be the perfect gift, I think. There can't be multiple perfect gifts. Which is why I feel so good about telling you 
that I have the perfect gift for this holiday season. I say it as a guy who owns an Aura digital picture frame and who has already purchased more than a few for the people on his list. Spoiler alert, friends of Mike, this is what you're getting. It's a digital picture frame. You can get all the photos in your phone onto this frame. You can get photos from all your friends onto this frame. The resolution is crazy good. This is not the digital frames you remember with the SD cards and the USB cords and all the other stuff. This is state-of-the-art. The resolution is unbelievably good. And I just love looking over, Chuck, to see a different image every single time. I've got like 15,000 photos in my phone. I don't have them all in the frame, but I have a lot of them because it's basically unlimited space. It's super cool. Have you had fun with it yet? Have you sent some pictures to your parents that are a little weird and offbeat? <laughs> I've sent them pictures from like the early Dirty Jobs days where I look like I'm 10 <laughs> and my right. arm is deep inside some barnyard animal, right? And it just looks like at a glance, it's like some German porno. It's perfect for the holidays. <laughs> my mother just called me the other day <laughs> to ask me what I was doing to that cow. And I said, don't laugh, Mom. That cow still calls. Look, oh. I don't know what you want to send your folks, but Chuck's point is a good one. Aura doesn't judge. Whatever pictures you want to share, you can share. Whatever you want to upload, you can upload. It's super easy to do, and right now you can save 30 bucks off their best-selling frames, which you should do at auraframes.com. auraframes.com slash Mike. Get 30% off their best-selling frames. You ought to do it now. Best gift ever for the holidays. And I mean that. A-U-R-A-U-R-A-U-R-A-Frames.com Slash Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. That's a great way to put it, propping it up. Because Diesel is the thrust. I was like, I didn't know anything. And this, the, you get this massive thrust with him. But there were all these supporting scaffolding things of little revelations of all these other characters. With Churchill, I'd always thought of Churchill as sort of a World War II guy. You know, that's how we mainly remember him as saving the free world. But he, as a young man, did a ton of stuff. The early Churchill years are fascinating. I mean, he was like riding around South Africa, running from the Boers, hiding in a mine and, you know, escaping barely. And uh, he played a huge role in World War I. He invented here. So here's a fun little footnote for us back on that theme. I don't know if you know where the word tank is. I guess if you read the book, you do now. But Churchill ran the Admiralty. He was first Lord of the Admiralty. Actually, before both wars, World War I and World War II, he was responsible for preparing the Royal Navy for war as a young man for World War I. But he, as World War I was getting going, realized they needed some sort of land vehicle to deal with these trenches and the warfare. And so he he wanted to do like a land assault vehicle on treads and it didn't yet exist. The army wasn't really going for it. So he created this fictitious thing called the land ship committee because <laughs> he felt like we need to do this tank. Right. If no one else is going to do it, I'm just going to do it, even though I'm a Navy guy. And so they started bringing in parts to experiment with building it in. And they, it was highly secret. So even the guards didn't know what was going on and they'd bring in the parts and they said they were building water tanks. So that sort of became the code, like tanks are what we're building. And so in the end, the name stuck, and that's what they called it. It was a tank. It was all because of Churchill's deception to hide the development of the thing. So there are tons of things I learned about Churchill like that in the book, and there were more on, like, Bush, Adolphus Bush. Uh, you know, it's, there were all these little quirky things that connected to the diesel story. Did I 
maybe I'm misremembering, but didn't Churchill almost lose it all, like step away from the whole thing after Gallipoli, Gallipoli. and the Dardanelles? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was That's like... That's right. His, he was responsible for that, that uh, jacked-up amphibious assault. Yeah, That's exactly right. It was early in the war, around 1915, and he had... If they had done it the way he drew it up, it actually likely would have worked because apparently the Ottomans were almost out of the... They had like three bullets left when they finally sort of like backed off a little bit, and then the Germans were able to come in and reinforce. He wanted more ships, and he also wanted land troops as well, and I think what they ended up doing was ships only but no land troops, and in the end, the whole thing was blamed on him. It got... Rather than getting up into the Dardanelles, they could have kind of gotten into the belly of Germany coming in south of them and, and um, put a quick end to the war was the hope. And they got yeah. bogged down in the Dardanelles. They mined it up and, and the British fleet, it all turned into this quagmire that there's, a, I think, a Mel Gibson movie about how bogged down and brutal it all got. And he was blamed for it. Uh-huh. So then he was kind of ousted and they call that his like years, of, what do they call it? His pasture years or something. But he... He basically yeah. had, you know, more than a decade of sort of being far from the center of power before he came back. I just think all that's so interesting. It's as interesting. I've read as much as I can find on Churchill, including the stuff he wrote mostly in bed. The guy lay around in bed for mm. hours every day. I love that. Economy of yeah. effort. Why why sit right. when you right. can lie down? Why run when you can walk? Why walk when you can stand? We're all so health conscious now. My wife and I were trying to, we're like, we got to drink less, we got to eat better. Mm. Churchill had like a bottle of champagne every night. He ate a ton. He lived till he's 95 years old. It's like, I don't know. We try to live better, but maybe it's just something else. It's all genetics. My favorite book on Churchill was written by Paul Johnson, who's written an awful lot of stuff. That little one, right? It's a little little one. It's super, super skinny. I mean, that's where I learned about the steady diet of cigars, a bottle of champagne a day at a minimum, lying in bed until noon, conducting major decisions on the phone in bed. The guy sustained or from in the bed. bathtub, right? Like so he's like dictating from the bath. Yes, yes, all the time, and you can see him just all corpulent and stretched out. But like, yeah, I remember him as sort of a poster child for something unhealthy. But in Johnson's book, there's this whole riff on the autopsy and the doctors were stunned they couldn't understand how lungs from a 95 year old man who smoked every day they said they looked like a baby's lungs his liver looked unused his kid like he had a constitution that didn't make sense for for the body that he had or the way we remember him amazing yeah all the things the doctors say are bad, you know, smoking, drinking, being overweight, and stress. I mean, he was off the charts on all four of those and lived in 95. Yeah. So the books behind you, mm-hmm. which of them matter most? What do you go to, Doug? I mean, do you find yourself rereading a lot of stuff or are you always looking for, for the new thing? I'm generally going new and now... Just work-wise, so I started this podcast, as you referenced earlier, where you know, Jack Carr was on, and I'll hold up this delicious whiskey again, but um, I'm reading a lot. I read for every guest who comes on. I interview terrific authors, and I always read at least one of their books when they come on. So that's a lot of my reading. And then I'm reading a ton of stuff for research already for the next book, I, which I won't say what it is exactly yet, but I'm putting together what I think will be, I'm putting a proposal together for what I think will be the next book in the same period of time, that quarter century. 
and doing a lot of reading Ethanol. for that. So, <laughs> yeah. Someone's telling me that they're like, you should do the book on that guy who died mysteriously. He invented an engine that could run on water. So I did look. There is a thing on this. There's a Wikipedia entry for this guy who died mysteriously. He claims he built an engine that runs on water, but no one's been able to reproduce his work. So it seems a little sketchy, but... Uh, you know where I read about that? Chuck, I said this to you the other day. There's a book by Irving Wallace written years ago called The Word. And in classic Wallace style, it's a big, thick tome. But there's a sub thing in it about something called the Riker Institute, which is made up, I think, but basically what they do is investigate inventions that have been deliberately quashed like a breathable textile, yeah. right? Like identical to cotton, except it never wears out. Or a synthetic tablet that is basically high octane that you can put into a tank of water and convert it into something that works in a combustion engine. All of these things supposedly invented, but later squashed. Now that's in a novel, but I wonder, I mean, it's hard to read that and imagine that some sort of planned obsolescence or something like it isn't happening everywhere we look. Yeah. I mean, there are even shades of that in the diesel story where his engine was a threat. It was a, a superior engine, but it was not going to lead to good things for entrenched, powerful businesses. So they were fighting, they were resisting it. They were resisting a, an advance in technology that certainly was going to be better for people. Did it change the way you think at all about fossil fuels today? And I mean, not to make it political, but when you look across the landscape at what's going on with our relationship mm -hmm. with energy as a people, did this in any way change how you think about that? It did. It made me realize how much of what we accept today as a foregone wasn't a foregone. I mean, I, I referenced this a little bit earlier, but it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion in 1905 that gasoline was going to be our primary fuel for combustion engines through the through the century. It could very easily have been coal tar. In fact, there was this, uh, this British journalist, W.T. Stead, who was a famous journalist. He actually died on the Titanic. Just a year before he died, he had written that you know Diesel was the great magician of the world because he has quadrupled man's power over nature, meaning that his engine because it's four times more efficient, we can make four times better use of what's available to us in nature. And that every coal plant was going to become a coking facility. And when you take coal and go through the coking process, you'd get coke, which is like a sort of a crusty, hard thing that can be used for heating, you know, burning. Coal gas, which can be used for fuel. And coal tar, which can be used in the diesel engine. His belief was that diesel had arrived and that it could burn on coal tar. And for certain countries like Great Britain or Germany that had no oil, no crude oil, but they had plenty of coal in the ground, diesel was the future. We would just take our coal and we would go through the coking process and coal tar would be the fuel for the diesel engine. And he was like, that's the future. And uh, that would be a balancing thing. We would then have to, you know, Churchill wouldn't have to go into the Middle East, into Persia and acquire land and oil for his ships. We would just use coal tar. It's amazing how much of this stuff was unsettled 120 years ago, and, and we forget that what exists today didn't have to be that way. I mean, it's mind-boggling, honestly. Did you know what you were going to work on next before you were finished writing this one? I had three ideas. All three came out of this book, really, and one I'm just in love with right now, so...
I've got to do a little bit more research. I mean, there, there's a ton. There's definitely a great story there. I just want like that cherry on top. You know, I want to find a couple of things. It'll be archival. You know, it's stuff I'm going to have to dig up, but I think it's going to be there. But if I can get a couple more kind of zingers to it, I, I've got another one that's just awesome. Oh, I can't wait. Is this your second or third or fourth? Uh, well, fourth overall, first nonfiction. Yeah, the other three are all novels. I've actually, I've got another one. Is it Ghost of Manhattan? Was that the first? Yes, that's my that's my first book. Yeah, 2012. First. So that was more about financial crisis, New York. Yeah, it's set in 07, 08. It's about that financial meltdown, the real estate with all those credit default swap derivatives that just blew everything up. It's really largely about a marriage, but the husband in the marriage is a bond salesman for Bear Stearns, which no longer exists mm -hmm. as a result of all that. <laughs> so it, it gets with sort of the push and pull of having a having a loving marriage in that environment, which is just you know, less wacky today, but still a little wacky and very wacky at those times in terms of the entertainment side of the business. Not too surprising then that the Gold Coast looms so large in your, uh, you know, so yes. influential. I mean, right? There's, I mean, that book is really a love story in a lot of ways about mm -hmm. a thing in New York that is really no longer there. The Gold Coast yeah. is pretty much gone, which is also interesting in this book too, right? When you think about the fall of empires and the fall of aristocracy mm -hmm. and so forth, that's what DeMille is kind of writing about, you know, 90 years later. There's a fun full circle story to my first novel, Ghost of Manhattan and Nelson DeMille and the Gold Coast, because the book came out in 2012. And as I have said, it was Gold Coast was the last book I read before I wrote that first book. And I got a phone call after the book had been out. I'd already kind of done the tour and I was trying to get going on the next one. But I got a phone call saying, hey, would you like to come to the Union League Club in New York? Because uh, we do this little book fair. And I run it, and I was riding the train in from Bronxville into the city, and someone was laughing at a book, and I went over to see what it was, and it was your book, Ghost of Manhattan, and the person raved about it, so we'd like to invite you to this fair. I said, that sounds great. They have a bunch of their members come in. You sell, like, 50 books or something. And she said, oh, and by the way, it's uh, sponsored by Nelson DeMille. He puts the whole thing on. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh my so God. there. And so it starts with a cocktail party at four o'clock. I, of course, made a beeline for Nelson. I told him the whole story about the thing. Like four bourbons later, you know, we've wrapped up the thing. There's a dinner afterwards. He and I are late night there. You know, he's become a great friend and mentor. And so now, you know, I've known him pretty well since 2012. We get together periodically for drinks and catch up. I mean, you, I don't have to tell you this, but you know how, that, how insanely remarkable that is for an author like you <laughs> who now is doing it right? You're four in to a be able to make a friendship with one of the true greats like DeMille, but more importantly, host a podcast where you get to bring in great writers and just talk about the thing you love. I mean, that's a, people spend a lot of space trying to figure out how to make us a, a virtuous circle like that. Mm. You appear to have done it. Well, I am loving doing the podcast, I, I have to say, it because it, it's a nice way to get me out of my little writing bunker. You know, writing is a solitary thing. It's what you're doing is so fun and great and engaging. I mean, you're, you must be so mentally engaged all the time. You know, you're curious and observant and you get to have that be part of your professional life too. And this dedicated show is great for me because I get to get out and talk to people and meet new people or see old friends in some cases in that way. 
it's a nice side hustle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know which you know, one's some, the side hustle at this point, but I was just going to say, you're going to wake up one day and go, <laughs> that tail is wagging the dog. Look at this. How did this happen? And I've uh, probably a inelegant transition, but fans of this podcast love your wife. She's been on here before, and I've been on her show. And they would kill me if I at least didn't ask what role Megan has played over the years and what kind of impact she's had on you, not as a wife or as a newscaster or as a lawyer, but as a writer. How do you guys work together vis-a-vis your books? She's great. We review each other's work. We're our greatest sort of mutual support system. Because, you know, in the end, it's all storytelling. Whether you're writing fiction whether you're writing nonfiction, whether you're doing your show, whether you're doing her show. I mean, someone she has writers on her show. She writes her own stuff. She's, In fact, right now she's writing her own debate questions for the Alabama debate. Mm. But it's all storytelling. There's an arc to everything, whether it's an interview or whatever. So her instincts for all of that are phenomenal, as you know. And she reads my books and she is unsparing. But as I say, I'd rather hear it from her than from the New York Times you know, she'll cross stuff out and say boring and big red letters or have really helpful suggestions and stuff like that. So she's great. She's terrific. She's really, she's the first read. I would say she's probably the first read and the last read, really. I mean, she, she's uh, in there for all that. I really don't like to show things until I finished a completed draft. I like to get that far along and then have someone give me a good look. What's the rewriting thing like for you? Gladwell talks about it in terms of Picasso and Cezanne, right? Picasso, who the second he was finished, he put down his brushes and he sold the painting. Cezanne, stories of him showing up at people's homes Mm -hmm. who would purchase his paintings to keep working on them. He could never let it go. (laughs) He was the Da Vinci type. Apparently Da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa around with him all his life, you know, like decades. (laughs) He just couldn't let the thing go. Yeah, You know, I've actually gotten better at the editing. So actually, even starting sooner than that, I'm a relentless outliner. I outline dozens and dozens, if not more than 100 pages, and I I will have drafts of my outline. Um, And then, you know, I stay, it's it's not a rigid thing. It's flexible. And then I have to update, as I get into the book, I have to update the outline because I see I've made decisions that are going to take me in a slightly different way. And so, but my outline is kind of a living document and I really rely on it, particularly in the nonfiction side. And then... The editing is also pretty relentless. I mean, I do a lot of drafts. I It's not even like go back and just repay over one big edit. It's just constant editing, as you know. You sort of comb the hair out chapter by chapter. And then you have an idea of like, oh, I need to change that. So it's just, it's all a living document forever. You know, it just goes on and on. And that's before I get to my editor, who then just kicks my just, butt up and down of for more edits and, you know. Yeah. Well, how do you know when you're done? Does it go click? Like, oh, okay, we're done, or do you just hit your deadline? It's almost like when the gun is to my head going, click, like, I've had enough, I can't take any more. There also has to be, like, a level of satisfaction. Like, you kind of know, like, I think I've got it. You know, I think this all works. Because otherwise, you're sort of like, you can feel when it's not, like, this was a really hard book to write, because it was doing so many different things. You're Mm -hmm. following the Kaiser, then Rockefeller, then Diesel, then you're back. And so the connective tissue between those things needed to be logical and make sense. And the one hard rule I had was chronology is your friend. Just stay with chronology when in doubt. You mean like a timeline? I didn't want to go 1870 to 1910, back to 1880, that kind of thing. Like I was following three people, but I kind of brought them all along year by year. Yeah. Did you know the end of the book 
before yes. you wrote it or did you discover early, it while you early, were writing? I mean, really you early did. on, I almost wrote this as historical fiction. I almost did like a novel. I was like, there's almost nothing written about the guy in the English language. I'm like, well, maybe I'll just sort of make up the dialogue. I've got the, I've got the sort of structure of a story here of, you know, what happened. And I'll just, you know, it doesn't have to be nonfiction or a history book. I'll just tell a story based on it. And then I realized I got to do it as, as nonfiction. I mean, it's, it's, because I, I did, it's, it's almost like, do you know those paintings where it's gibberish, but then you stare at it for a few minutes and all of a sudden you see, oh my God, it's the spaceship or whatever. Yeah, right. Like I had been yes. on this thing for so right. long and then I had a vision of like, it's that, I see it so clearly. And then when I had that as like the hypothesis, every bit of research I did in the Churchill archives, everything I found was like, oh my God, it's all lining up around this. It's the only thing that makes sense. That was when I was for sure this has to be nonfiction. And and it required a lot more research. It required, I went back to my high school and found the German teacher who translated reams of material from German <laughs> to English for me. So it was a big effort, but it all really, for me, paid off. I have to say, without giving anything away, and I think I wrote this to you, I think I wrote you the day that I finished the book, that I gasped out loud when <laughs> I got to the place where the mystery is revealed. And I was like, holy cow, because I did not see it coming. And I just thought, wow, the way you set everything up, it's just beautiful. This really is a whodunit that is uh, oh, well, thank worth you. the ride. And my dad sure. sends his regards. He's 91 as of two days ago, and this is going into his book club. Well, it's next on the list. They've got a bunch of others, but they're going to fast track it because he was a history teacher. And I oh, gave this to him because I just knew he would love it. And sure enough, he was just, he must have called me half a dozen times over the course of reading it, just going, Hey, did you know that, uh, you know, and that's so <laughs> like, no, that I, I didn't, but just oh, don't tell I'm me the end. His, uh, I'm thrilled his book club is doing it. I'd be happy to, if he does zooms, I'd be happy to zoom in there and say hello when they do it. Wow. The average age is 120, Doug. <laughs> so if you do that, then I'm going to record the whole thing because I think that is something, yes. I think it's something your wife would probably feature on one of her episodes. It's, that's it's, right. It is that much fun to watch. <laughs> It's an extraordinary assemblage, like a thousand years of experience among 10 dudes. It'd be amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, if you do it, you'll be repeating yourself a lot. Cause, and you'll be hey, talking real If those real guys can even, if they are even able to log in, I'll be amazed. <laughs> I can barely do it. Yeah, I get help logging in half the time. Final thought, man. I don't want to keep you forever, but something struck me about you were just like the enthusiasm of this book fair, the idea of a book fair. I want people to better understand what that is. But I also thought it was interesting that you talked about the World's Fair as such mm. a moment, such a really important global thing. I see that as micro and macro, right? Like the World's Fair, people don't quite understand how important that was, I think, to innovation and civilization. In the same way that people might not be able to appreciate the importance of of a book fair, a much smaller thing, but so important for authors to come together and mm -hmm. weigh and measure and drink and laugh and criticize and right. I mean, somehow or another, if you could stitch that together in a way that helps us land the plane, I'd be obliged. It would be fun. And the truth is every author would love it and appreciate it because we do have these solitary careers and it's not easy to get out and find each other. There are big 
fairs that happen annually. There's the Miami Book Fair. There's one in Frankfurt and Texas. But even those things are a big hodgepodge. You're running around and speaker tracks and things like that. There isn't really a social place to do it. And I, I actually talked to my publisher about it once. I'm like, I went to SNS, Simon & Schuster. I said, what? You guys should have like a salon type thing, for lack of a better word. Just get everybody who's in your house together and just throw a cocktail party. We can meet each other. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't in the budget, I guess, but it hasn't really happened. But um, I think that <laughs> something like that would be great. So I'll, I'll take that on. That's my next thing. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and then bring the World's Fair back because yes. that hasn't happened in decades, right? I mean, yeah, when was the last? I don't, you know, it's kind of like divvied up. You have like CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. It's gotten sort right. of like uh, splintered, I guess. Right. Yeah. Niche. That's such a great. I mean, hard to call that one niche. It like takes over Las Vegas. It's like so massive. But I think if you had a World's Fair that like covered all of industry and science and health, I'd, you know, that would take up all of Connecticut. And no, not the global economic forum. Not that thing. I'm talking something, <laughs> something more egalitarian. Something where you know in, inventors are are welcome. I don't know if I'm frozen. Oh, there we go. Now you're fine. Yeah, you froze for a second. I just there, thought Mike. that warrior proof had really done its magic. <laughs> And that's <laughs> it has good old Jack. Hey, that's great. He's on your show. Was it annoying at all to you that the guy only ever wanted to be two things and did them both and did them both <laughs> well? Yeah, like really well. well. I mean, I found that a little tiresome, honestly. <laughs> well, he's, he's probably going to come up with a third pretty soon and then he'll hit that out of the park, too. Of course. No, he was terrific, man. The Plymouth Gin, that's where he got the, what did he call it, warrior strength? Because the Plymouth Gin is Navy strength. Navy he's strength. A Navy SEAL. And by the way, I got to fact check you, Mike. Uh, Travis McGee drank Boodle's Gin. You conflated the two. No, I didn't. He went to Boodle's after Plymouth was discontinued. The original Plymouth Gin with the ship on the side, uh. it's a terribly British gin. And McDonald wrote from 64 yes. up through 86. So when he got into the early 70s, McGee couldn't find his Plymouth, so he went to his Boodles. And is that right? Okay, yep. I, not yep. bad then. No, I don't screw around with. So the, somebody resurrected the brand there. I'm doing what I can. <laughs> I picked it up. I was in North Carolina, and I saw it. They didn't have Plymouth, but they had Boodles, and I picked it up, and I was like, I really like this, and it's not that expensive. It's cheap and it's good. Yeah. All right, so your mission, folks, whether you accept it or not, is to pick up the mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel. Spoiler alert, don't wreck it for anybody. But uh, if you love a good story, a good read, if you're curious about biography and history, you're going to love this. And studies show if you sip a little Boodles or a little Plymouth, the page turning will go even faster. So do that. Doug, did I miss anything? Oh, we should listen to your podcast, which is called Dedicated. And, Dedicated. Uh, yeah. Oh, and read Gold Coast, which is also good. Also yeah. great. Yeah. And uh, maybe Terminalist by Jack Carr. And then we've probably touched all the bases. Good. George McDonald Frazier, Flashman, one of the greatest, I think, historical fiction pieces you're going you're gonna to find. And of course, John D. McDonald and Travis McGee. Yeah, and that John probably D. does it. Donald, yeah. And the Megan Kelly show. Maybe Bar which is Barbara Tuckman. The way I heard it by Barbara Tuckman is also Kelly great. Show. Very solid. Very solid. <laughs> if I can ever return the favor, Doug, I'm at your disposal. I, I did write a book once. It's not very good, I, but people seem to like it. You can read it in about 10 minutes. I would love that. I'm going to take you up on that, please. And uh, if we were to do it in person, would that be in New York? Is that typically where you are most of the time or Connecticut? 
Yes. Are you, next time you're passing through, let me know. We'll book a date. Are you coming through any time that you know of? Nothing on the calendar, but I'm sure January, February, I'll be there. That would be perfect. Let's do it. You can't really do whatever it is I pretend to do and not go to New York from time to time. So let's go through the whole schedule right now. You know what, Chuck? You do that. Uh, you know, just everybody get out your calendar. And uh, <laughs> while we're saying goodbye. And I'm going to get some day quill. Ever. Uh, have another snort of Noble. And just to see what happens. Maybe a little more Afrin, just because I'm curious at this point to see how it all shakes out. You've been uh, awfully generous, Doug. I appreciate it. Good luck. I'm assuming sales are booming still because the reviews are everybody loves it, blah, blah, blah. Sales are doing well. I think word of mouth and reviews are keeping sales in a pretty good place. So hopefully we can keep that rolling through the holidays. Good. Well, like Jack Carr, I'm envious of your talent and your success. Please come back anytime. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You bet. If you like what you heard. And even if you don't. Oh, won't you please. Won't you please. Pretty please. Pretty please. Subscribe. Well, I hate to beg and I hate to plead, but please. Pretty freaking please. Please.